Christmas, the cure for our predicament. Um, we all were in, and some people still are in, a predicament. Uh, so what we're doing today is we're, we're going to ask this question. What exactly was the predicament we were born into? Did you notice born into? We're born, whether we like it or not, we were born into sin. We were born sinners. Can't do a thing about it until Jesus does something about it. I do believe in original sin. You've heard me say. If you don't believe in original sin, let me loan you a baby for a little while. And, and what was God's disposition towards our situation? What was his viewpoint? What was his perspective towards the predicament that we found ourselves in? And so we're going to conclude by pointing out that the message of Christmas contains the cure. The message of Christmas really is the cure to our predicament that we could do nothing about. So uh, turn to Isaiah 9. If you haven't already, and of course I didn't tell you to, but Isaiah 9, <laughs> you'd be real prophetic if you could do that. Uh, of course, you may be looked at the notes on the YouVersion app so you get ahead of me. But, and and uh, we're going to read uh, that actually, I guess I'm going to need these. Actually, I'm going to back up to uh, chapter 8 and start reading at verse 19. I want to set the stage for what Isaiah was writing here. If you would stand with me while we read God's Word. And beginning at verse 19 in chapter 8, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, which we would just call witchcraft, those who practice witchcraft, who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? So go home and throw away your Ouija boards. I'm serious. That wasn't a joke. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching or the Torah, watch this, I, I highlighted this in one of my Bibles. I've been reading the Bible since I could read, and I never noticed this verse. To the teaching or the Torah and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn or they have no light. Okay, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and when they, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Are you, are you depressed yet? <laughs> Hang on. Nine one. But there, then he changes to the message about Israel. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And this is how he has done that. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew quotes this, by the way. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
And then the one we all know for to us. A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Here's the key part. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will do this. You can be seated. The predicament of mankind. Since Adam and Eve, Scripture actually puts the responsibility of on Adam uh, for the fall. You've heard me tell you that God never told Eve to not partake of the tree. He told Adam to not partake of the tree. And it was Adam's responsibility to make sure Eve did not. So therefore, not only that, but he was standing right next to her when she did it. And she gave it to him. So the Bible, you read the Bible, it puts the responsibility on Adam. These guys, they hate coming in marriage counseling in my office because I look them right in the eye and say, I'm starting with you, dude. You're the first one. But since Adam and Eve fell, the whole human race has been in a predicament. We've been in a mess. Sigmund Freud correctly concluded that the heart of out of the heart of man proceeds all manner of evil. All manner of evil. <laughs> Someone said, why does bad things happen to good people? And then uh, I heard uh, the late Dr. Rogers, Adrian Rogers, say, well, the answer to that question is there are no good people. Because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. In the New Testament and the Old Testament. None righteous. None. Everybody say none. none. Uh, you know, that means L zero. That's my Spanish for you. Because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and again, I, I always have to put this in here and you've heard it. We say, well, man, I wish I, I wish they hadn't have done that. Well, all of us wish they hadn't have done that. But all of us know that if we'd have been there, we would have done that. We would have just done it sooner than they did that. But because of that, man is sinful from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. All right, are you depressed yet? Just hang on. Don Calvin called this total depravity. If you're familiar with the tulip, I'm not a full tulip person. I'm not a total Calvinist. But I am a T in the, in the tulip, total depravity of, of mankind when, when Adam and Eve sinned. We were infected with a poison. You take poison, put, it in a, put one drop of poison in a glass of water, and the whole glass of water is poison. Just one drop. We were infected with that poison. Last week, I told you about Opie Taylor. Today, I'm going to tell you about Opie Taylor again. This is the Reader's Digest version, but Barney's throwing a fit to get a message across to Opie. By the way, the same episode I quoted last week. It's another story, but... Uh, and he's throwing a fit all over the place, and, and Opie jumps up and runs out of the courtroom, and, he's, and Barney says, where are you going? He said, I'm leaving. You're a sight. You know, the human race was a sight. In fact, in some ways, we still are a sight. 
we still are a mess. The key part is, what was God's disposition? How does God relate to our predicament? Well, God's holiness and God's righteous nature requires satisfaction. Understand this. God's holiness requires to be satisfied. And the wrath of God has to be, or it inevitably has to come upon wrongdoing. In other words, God is a just God. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He cannot tolerate sin. It must be judged. Not because God's a mean old ogre who hates us. If he hated us, there would be no John 3.16. But because God is God. But God, he tricked himself. He knew his, his nature. He knew what it was required of him. And so he took care of satisfying the requirement of his own nature. Don't get too far from me. The Edinburgh Review, I guess it was a newspaper, they used this as their motto. The judge is condemned when the guilty are acquitted. Now, I don't know what theologian, uh, that, I think that was Publius or somebody, statement from them. I don't know if they were a theologian or not, but that's, that's what we're talking about. God, if God would have let us go without judging our sin, then he would have been guilty. He would have been condemned, but he didn't do that. It was a requirement. God's justice demands that the sinner be punished. There's a demand. Human race had sinned. Human race had been infected with one drop of poison. And it was a, it was a requirement, not because God's mean, but because God's just that that sinner, that the sinner, the human race, be punished. And it was the wickedness of sin and it was the holiness of God that makes Christmas necessary. It was the love of God that was the motivation for coming himself to earth. So sin, human beings have to be punished for the sin. God comes in the form of a human being. And that human being who was sinless... And perfect, was nailed to a cross and died a sinner's death, taking with him the penalty for our sin. So a human being did satisfy God's just requirements. A human being did pay the penalty in the debt that you and I owed because of our sin. He paid it. He paid the debt. Aren't you glad? Into this, because of the love of God, into this land, this place of darkness that Isaiah is describing in chapter 8. Into this darkness comes not only a ray of hope, but he describes it as a bright light. Into the darkness. He says in chapter 8, there's darkness and gloom. Then in chapter 9, he says, but... We got a solution for the darkness and the gloom. And it's going to be a ray of hope and a bright light. Which is the Christmas message. Verse 2 and 9, he says, 
People who walk in darkness have seen or will see a great light. People will see a great light. And when Matthew quotes this, it's right about the time that Jesus begins his ministry. People in dark. Do you know anybody in darkness? You don't get around if you don't. People in darkness. There's a darkness of depression. My goodness, we deal with depression today in our culture. There's a darkness of substance abuse. Remembering that it's the substance is the abuser. There's a personal calamity that people deal with. There's a lack of peace and joy, which is Don's song is so great because we need Christmas this time of year because we need peace and we need joy to infuse our land. But just not just the land, our people. Christmas, the Christmas message is about, I was blind, but now I see. I was in darkness, but now I'm in light. That's, Chris, that's the Christmas message that God has brought us, you and me, who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior And we've been transformed and regenerated by the power of his Holy Spirit. We were blind, but now we see. Don't take that for granted. Verse 3, he says, you multiplied the nations. I call that Jesus making a mountain out of a molehill. Jesus making a mountain. The word there is multiply. And, And that means to make one more than they are. How, how many of us know that when Jesus got a hold of us, he makes more of us than we were. He makes more of us than we could do on our own. He makes more on, of us than we could ever, could ever happen outside the supernatural work of Jesus Christ. Back to amazing grace. It says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And when Jesus found you and he found me, he didn't find much. Let's just face it. We didn't bring a whole lot to the table. And what we did bring to the table probably wasn't even useful. Paul says this. Paul says, man, I had all of these degrees and all of these pedigrees and all of that was worthless to God. But what God does, he, now he takes you and me and he starts to make a, a mountain out of our molehill. He makes us something. He proceeds to make us become much. It says he increased their joy. Well, certainly, if you're coming out of darkness, you're increased in joy. Then he goes on to say in verse 4 that he breaks the yoke of burden and bondage that was on us. What is the yoke of burden and bondage? It is the bondage to sin. It is the bondage to that which violates God's character. And and whether we like it or not, before we were converted by the power of His Spirit, before that happened, we were in bondage to sin. Sin is a very hard taskmaster. When you watch people and you meet people who've lived a life apart from Christ... Uh, it shows on their face because sin ravages and sin annihilates. Sin is not our friend. Sin eliminates the quality of life. 
We, we, we who are Christians, we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we, we need to remember that when we, even though we're born again, we, could, we might have a propensity to move into an area that is not God's way. And what we have now done is reduced our quality of life. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers us his yoke. The imagery here is that of taking a larger, stronger, more mature ox, putting it on one side of the yoke, taking a younger, immature ox and putting it on the other side. And yoking them together. And as they go about their way, if the younger immature ox tries to go over here, he gets a neck ache. (laughs) Because the larger ox carries the load for the most part. You go along, follow the one who you're yoked with. And when we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we attempt to get out of the way of God's prescription, our neck hurts. Because he said, take my yoke upon you, it's easy. But when it's not easy, it's when we try to go a different direction. Notice, by the way, that God didn't promise that we'd have no burden. Jesus didn't promise no burden. He promised that his burden is light. Because he's doing the work. Because of Christmas, Romans 6.14 says, Sin is no longer your master. Now, I want to read that, but I want us to, to replace your with my. Can you do that? All right, here we go. Sin is no longer my master. That's Christmas. That's what Christmas is about. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus came to earth as a human being. In, um, uh, I think, Micah 7, 14, it says that there will be a virgin who will give birth, name, name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came incarnate as a human being. He was 100% human, and he was 100% God. Amen. Child is born. And because a child is born and becomes one of us, the writer of Hebrews can write, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who, in the the vernacular, has been there, done that. We have a high priest who has lived what we've lived. The Bible says that he was tempted. Everybody say tempted. In every way that we could be. Which is an indication that being tempted is not sinful. Because we know that Jesus was without sin. Jesus, verse 6, also came to perpetuate the family name. So not only do we see a child is born, but a son will be given. A child, as a child, cloaked with humanity... And one of us, he came as a, as a perfect human sacrifice for all mankind as a child. He was a human being. As a son, see, it's interesting. It says a child and a son. As a son, he, he came to build the family name. 
Remember two weeks ago we read in Ephesians where it said, from God the Father, from whom all the family, the fatherhood, gets its name. He came to, to continue and to perpetuate the name of God. Every one of us who breathe the breath of God, every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have become part of that family, and we worship and we live under that family name. And You know, my boys used to go out, and I'd tell them, remember what your last name is. Now I'm having to tell grandchildren that. Remember what your last name is and behave accordingly. And glad they didn't see me as a teenager, so that's another story. (laughs) When you and I go out into the world, remember what your name is. You bear the name of Jesus Christ. You bear the name of Yahweh, God the Father. Because Jesus came to perpetuate the family name. Are we good with that? Also in verse 6, we see that he was born as a king. He was born as our king. King of kings. Lord of lords. It says the government, the government will rest on his shoulders. You can take the words government and kingdom and make them interchangeable. They're the same thing. The government, the kingdom rests on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He's born as our king. We, we need to remember that, especially in this day, in that day, that many of those kings were harsh. They were cruel. They didn't care about their constituents and their subjects. They were insecure and they were arrogant. Why else would Herod the Great have all the boys two years old and under killed? The massacre of the innocents. How could that happen? Insecurity, harshness, arrogance, cruelty. These are the kind of kings they were dealing with. But now a king has arrived on the scene. And, and Isaiah describes for us and for the readers of his, of his prophecy, he describes for us a different kind of a king. Imagine reading this for the first time and you're living in a kingdom like Herod the Great. You're living in a kingdom where the king is cruel and arrogant. And harsh and uncaring. And then you read where the prophet says his name will be Wonderful Counselor. What kind of king is that? What kind of king is going to be a Wonderful Counselor? All they ever do is beat us over the head and punish us and take our money. He says this king, by the way, Isaiah 28, 29 says, Wonderful is his counsel and great is his wisdom. He says this king is going to be a mighty God. The mighty God. Oh, this king is the eternal father. He said, now, was Isaiah confused? Remember what Jesus said? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And he, he relates to us with the gentleness and the caring of a father. And he said, he's not only all of these things, but he's the prince of peace. He's the prince. And we sometimes... If you've been around a while, you, you, you say these things. Wonderful counsel, blah, blah, prince of peace. Think about it. prince of peace. Shalom. Shalom's not the absence of conflict necessarily. Shalom is your well-being, your health, your spiritual and physical health. That's shalom. That it may go well with you. That's shalom. And Jesus, as our king, is the prince of that. What a different king. 
And because of all that, we're encouraged to approach the throne of this king. You know, we even learn in Esther and other books that if you approach the king's throne without being without permission, that you would you'd be like John the Baptist. You'd lose your head. You'd lose your life. You couldn't do it. But Jesus not only made a way as a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. He made a way. He didn't just make a way. He says, and he has his writer of Hebrews tell us, come boldly. Come with confidence. It's almost a command. Let's go, let's go approach the throne of this king because he cares. That's what Christmas is about. And then he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So everybody say, no end. No I don't know what that means, except that it hadn't ended yet. The increase has not stopped. What I don't know, what happens in eternity? Does his kingdom keep growing? Probably. I found this several years ago. It's a little dated, uh, but uh, go ahead and put that up there, William. Uh, Okay, we're getting there. One more. No, maybe another one. I can't see what this is. Well, do I have a chart on there for the U.S. Center for World Missions? I don't? Well, crazy me. <laughs> I meant to put it in there. In, in, the, in 100 A.D., the total world population was 180 million people. There were uh, a half a million active believers in Jesus Christ. That's one to twelve. I'm just going. I'm not going to go through the list. But in 2010, um, we had okay. I don't know seven billion people. Is that right? Here's my point. In the year 100, there was one believer to every 12 people. In the year 2010, there was 1,000 believers to every one. 1,000 to one. What does that mean? That means that his kingdom has continued to increase. And while we do live in a bleak time and while we do see things around us that make us shake our head and, you know, we see, you make us say things like if Jesus doesn't come back soon, I don't know when he's ever going to come back. If, but one thing we got to remember is that the growth of God's kingdom has never ceased to increase and it won't. Because of Christmas. Because of an unshakable kingdom. The first Christmas night in a stable in Bethlehem began in darkness. But it ended up in light. It began under the dominion of a hard taskmaster. We've already referred to Herod the Great. Although I don't think he was so great. Now we serve under a benevolent king. Who loves us who guides us, and who welcomes us to come before him. He introduced a new way of living and the forever advancing kingdom of God. 
a new way of living. It's, sometimes we take this for granted because we've grown up in it. But if we could put ourselves in their shoes, in their place, what did the, what? What is he talking about? God the Father? Who addresses God as God the Father? Really? All of this was new to them. It was a new way of living. And he says when he arrives, Mark 1, he says, Now, since I'm here, the kingdom of God is near you. It's ex, it's uh, accessible and available to you because I'm here. Because I brought the kingdom with me. I brought this kingdom that brings peace and joy with me. And now you can access and live under and in the kingdom of God. Because I have arrived. And because you're in this kingdom that is not shrouded in darkness, but is, but is a kingdom of light, the characteristics and the qualities of this kingdom are totally different from the one we came out of. And Jesus was born the cure for our predicament. You've heard me say, and I don't want to overdo it, but let's, let's don't leave Jesus in the manger. It's nice to this time of year to see cute little babies. And, and my wife showed me again the video of the little girl stealing baby Jesus out of the manger during the church play. Y'all might have seen that. And, and, and then Mary fighting the little girl for baby Jesus. <laughs> During the church play, we had a church play here one time, and the kids were up here gathered around the manger, and the shepherds were standing here with their back to the audience, and we had a, a real baby. It wasn't, I mean, it was a real baby, and it, it started doing what babies do. Thank God the Gabriel didn't, but the baby started crying and fussing and carrying on, and one of the shepherds was standing here, and he turned around and looked at the congregation, and he said, is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> <laughs> and we have a tendency I mean we love that we should love that but we also should remember that Jesus didn't stay in the manger and because of that Christmas and the message of Christmas is the cure everybody say cure for our predicament that we were in Unless we have never given our life to Jesus Christ, and that's in that case, we're still in. Jesus and Christmas is the cure for our predicament. Would you say amen to that? Amen. Then stand with me.